0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Jew to Know. Now, every country has its original sin, the thing at the beginning of its history that is part of its narrative of independence and yet is shameful. The United States has slavery. Russia has the terror of the Bolshevik revolution. For India, it's the massacres associated with its partition into Pakistan in 1947. For many South American countries, it's the legacy of military dictatorships and on and on. For Israel, It's a tiny Arab village near Jerusalem that was named Deir Yassin. Now, depending on your viewpoint, the facts are either not entirely known or are disputed, because of course. But one way or another, we know this. On April 9th, 1948, fighters from the Irgun and the Lehi attacked the village and left at least 100 people dead. Defenseless men, women, and children. Some were killed in house-to-house fighting, some were outright executed. It was a massacre and an atrocity roundly condemned by the Jewish community and its leaders, it nevertheless left a permanent stain on Israel's independence. The massacre at Deir Yassin was part of a major offensive to establish fortified boundaries of the Jewish state before the Arab armies would invade upon the Declaration of Independence. It was bold, controversial, necessary, and ultimately successful, but it had lasting consequences. In the final push of the Palestinian Civil War, the establishment of the Jewish state was by no means assured. But Ben Gurion had every intention of making it happen in May. To do that, he knew the Jews would need a defensible state. So he sent out to the Haganah what historians agree was the most difficult decision of his career attack. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew No. Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. As the Palestinian Civil War ramped up in response to the UN's partition vote in November of 1947, the Jewish leadership cycled through several defensive plans, each named after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. None of them were working very well. Jerusalem was under siege and essentially unreachable. Same with Sfat. The Arabs had made travel and communication in the north extremely dangerous, isolating the Jewish communities from one another and from help. David Ben-Gurion had already enacted mandatory conscription for every man and woman, but the Jews were lacking in weapons. The UN wasn't enforcing the partition plan that it enacted, the British were basically helping the Arabs, the United States was wavering on the entire idea, and, well, things were bleak. The civil war had turned into a bloodbath. The head of the Haganah was a 31-year-old fighter named Yigal Yadin. He'd been in and out of the Haganah since joining up at the age of 15, and Ben-Gurion pulled him out of school to head things up in 1948. Yigal Yadin had a distinguished career in the Israeli military, but if you've been to Israel, you've no doubt encountered his other life's work without realizing it. He was Israel's most famous archaeologist. If you've been to Masada, well, all those preserved ruins are what Yigal Yadin dug up. Yadin and other prominent officers, like the young warrior god from episode 47, Yitzhak Rabin, who was then in command of the Palmach unit trying to keep the road open to Jerusalem, they were pushing to go on the offensive against the Palestinians. It was an enormous risk. And for one thing, they could lose. To fail would utterly collapse the Jewish defense, and the Jews would be overrun. Secondly, it was unclear how the British would react. They were openly supporting the Arabs would they just stand by and watch the Jews attack? Third, the Haganah was built for defense. Militarily, tactically, and ideologically, they weren't an invasion force, and they weren't sure if they could pull this off. And fourth, even if they did succeed, would they be then too weakened to face the onslaught of the Arab armies? Faced with the most difficult decision of his entire career, A mind-boggling gamble that literally risked everything and everyone the Zionist movement had been fighting for for decades. Ben-Gurion, the unwavering believer in the Jewish homeland, obsessed about Jewish security, gutsy as hell, totally overconfident, gave his answer. Do it. In April of 1948, Plan Dalet was put into effect, named after the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the equivalent to the English letter D. Plan Dalet was simple in its idea: consolidate Jewish territory into something defensible against the coming invasion by the Arab states. If you were to look at an actual map of Jewish Palestine at this moment, it would look like a series of tiny islands connected by thin strips of road. So, what Plan Dalet said was this. We're going to defend the jews in the cities like jaffa haifa tzfat and most importantly jerusalem we're going to defend them by capturing the arab parts of those cities but to do that and to protect the jews in those little island bits of territory we have to capture and secure the roads and to capture the roads we have to capture the arab villages that lie alongside them and that lie next to jewish settlements you can see where things are about to get really controversial Because the question is, what happens to the Arabs living in those villages? This is where Israel's critics see a land grab, and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Plan Dalit, they say, wasn't really defensive. It was just a convenient excuse to rid Palestine of the Palestinians, to push them out of their villages and have the Jews move in. And they have a point. Ben-Gurion was adamant that the coming Jewish state have an overwhelming Jewish majority, under the partition plan, the Jewish state would be about 60% Jewish, a percentage that would likely diminish over time. Ben-Gurion wanted that percentage up dramatically. Without a Jewish majority, he knew, the future Jewish state wouldn't be the Jewish state for very long. And Israel's critics are right. Plan Dalit was awfully convenient for pushing the Palestinians out. And there's no denying that that's exactly what happened in some places. But of course, that's not the only answer. Plan Dalit specified what the military's orders were. The Haganah was to launch attacks against Arab areas that posed a threat to nearby Jewish defenses. If the village resisted, its residents were to be expelled, since the Haganah would not allow a hostile force to remain. In some cases, this might also require destroying the village, since they wouldn't want to leave any structures that could be reoccupied by the enemy. If the people didn't resist, then the residents could stay put under temporary occupation, and when the jewish state would be declared those arabs who remained would be given full and equal citizenship and it's important to acknowledge that that also happened so was plan dalit just a defensive plan or was it ethnic cleansing i doubt there's any one truth yet to be uncovered that everyone will agree on with their backs to the wall the jews opted for a risky and aggressive offense as their defense it doesn't seem unreasonable to want to push back enemy forces from your territory in the midst of a war. Plan Dalit did not instruct the Haganah to expel all the Arabs from Palestine, just those areas along the border that posed a threat. And since I have you here, let me say something else controversial. Let's see how we feel about it. Was it really unreasonable to expect that in the creation of a Jewish state in an Arab state, that there would be some amount of population transfer? that had long been part of the zionist outlook but only on the fringes was it seriously considered as a matter of the use of force most people assumed that when the jewish state would be created that some percentage of palestinian arabs would simply leave to join their fellow arabs in other countries or in the new palestinian state that they wouldn't want to live in a jewish state and that would be fine had there not been a war following the u.n partition vote I don't think it would be crazy to have expected that to have happened entirely peacefully. This certainly wouldn't be the only place in the world where such population transfers happened, or continue to happen. In other words, the Zionists thought that the population transfer would happen inevitably. They didn't need the Haganah to force it to happen. The Arab village of Abu Ghosh is a case in point. It's one of several dozen villages that sit right along the highway between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, so major strategic territory in 1948. The Jews were suffering huge losses along that road, so capturing all those Arab villages was essential. But since the early 1900s, Abu Ghosh, with a population of about a thousand, had been on good terms with the Jews and enjoyed close relations with the nearby kibbutz. It was the only Arab village that did not attack the Jewish convoys during the Civil War. And so when Plan Dalit came into effect in April of 1948, Abu Ghosh was the one village that the Haganah did not attack. Although many of Abu Ghosh's residents left during the war, almost all returned when Israel became a state. The fact of the matter is that the Haganah only occasionally had to reach for expulsion. Which doesn't excuse things, of course, but it's important to have that perspective. Most Arabs fled before the Haganah could get to them. Which you can't really blame them. It was a very nasty civil war, and they were terrified of the Jews. Some later returned, but most never did. And in this way, the Jews were able to take control of those lands. But here's the problem even if Plan Dalit didn't explicitly call for the expulsion of the Arabs, it established the conditions that allowed for it. So it gave local commanders the excuse to make it happen. And that inevitably led to abuses. And in a few instances, Those abuses led to outright atrocities, like Dir Yassin, Israel's Original Sin. kicked off in April of 1948, and the first big operation was to end the Arab blockade leading from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem was isolating 100,000 Jews from food, water, medicine, and the defense forces. Along the road, as I just mentioned, sat Abu Ghosh and several dozen other Palestinian Arab villages about five miles from Abu Ghosh. In very close to Jerusalem was the small village of Deir Yassin with about 600 people. The capture of Deir Yassin fell to the Irgun and the Lehi, not the Haganah. The Jews still hadn't consolidated their defense organizations into one group, and Menachem Begin was still in charge of the Irgun, although he was not much involved at Deir Yassin. Lehi, the fanatical terrorist outfit that had assassinated Lord Moyne back in 1944, they were also involved. Although the Haganah commander in Jerusalem approved the operation, he did so reluctantly. Deir Yassin had tense but mostly peaceful relations with a nearby Jewish neighborhood. He also, along with Menachem Begin, approved the operation, but on the condition that women, children, and prisoners not be killed under any circumstances. Early in the morning of April 9, 1948, the 120 Irgun and Lehi finders came into the village, where they met resistance from Arab fighters. The operation was a mess. The Jewish fighters weren't very well trained, There was a lot of confusion about what was happening. A lot of Jewish fighters were getting wounded, and what was supposed to have been a quick assault quickly got bogged down under Arab sniper fire. A house-to-house fight ensued, trapping the villagers in place. In many cases, the Irgun fighters tossed grenades into homes to clear them without determining who was inside, and it was often innocent women and children hiding from the battle. They dynamited several houses, killing everyone inside several witnesses reported people being dragged out of their homes and executed in the street some of the fighters took to looting in the aftermath in an especially unconscionable act that should bring everlasting shame the irgun took 55 children whose parents were just killed in a village orphaned only hours ago brought them to the jaffa gate outside jerusalem's old city and just left them standing there it's hard to say how many people were killed Different reports give different numbers. At a minimum, it was 107, only a few of them actual fighters. It may have been as many as 200. Later, more terrible stories came out, but they all contradicted each other. The things I just told you I think are pretty well verified, but a lot of other stories never were, so it's hard to always know what really happened. But that Deir Yassin is an atrocity, there's no doubt. But why I raise it to the level of calling it Israel's original sin is because it became a propaganda touchstone for everyone involved. Everyone changed various facts to suit their agenda and interpreted the outcome in ways that suited their political aims. The Irgun and the Lehi wanted to terrify the Arabs into leaving Palestine, so they bragged about how many people they killed and how completely they had overrun the village. Their propaganda worked, Thousands of Arabs fled the area after hearing about Deir Yassin, terrified that the Jews would come for them next. Menachem Begin later bragged that beyond what actually happened, what was invented about Deir Yassin, he said, helped carve the way toward decisive victories on the battlefield. Several Arab villages along the Jerusalem road surrendered without resistance, enabling Jewish convoys to get through. The Arabs, too, wanted to capitalize on what happened. They hoped that by embellishing the details, both local Palestinians and Arabs throughout the Middle East would be stirred into joining the fighting. So they made up stories in the Arab press about pregnant women being raped and babies being executed. Instead of galvanizing the Palestinians, it terrified them even more, prompting even more thousands to run away. Even survivors of the massacre later said that those stories weren't true and blamed the Arab leaders for starting rumors that prompted people to leave. For the Jews, remember that the left-wing Ben-Gurion hated the right-wing Menachem Begin, personally and politically. He was more than happy to make the Irgun look bad, so the Jewish agency in the Haganah also piled on to Deir Yassin. They publicly condemned the Irgun. Ben-Gurion used it as an excuse to prevent closer political cooperation with the revisionist Zionists, the right-wing side of the movement. Rabbis and other Jewish community leaders also issued condemnations. And of course, for the Palestinians themselves, Deir Yassin became emblematic of Israel and a key part of the Palestinian narrative. It's the example that proves Israel's colonialist, land-stealing, ethnic-cleansing nature, and it's seen as a foretelling of today's occupation of the West Bank, which began in 1967. In the eternally controversial question of how the Palestinians became refugees, we see in Deir Yassin all the reasons at once. Some left Palestine because they were expelled by the Jews, like several hundred of the survivors of Deir Yassin. Others left voluntarily because they were scared of the fighting around them. Others left because Arab leaders elsewhere either encouraged them to or scared them with propaganda about Jewish brutality. Others left thinking that it would only be temporary and they could return once the fighting had subsided or the Jews had been defeated. Deir Yassin still exists today, but it's not called that. It is instead a neighborhood of Jerusalem called Kfar Shaul, where remains of the original homes and buildings are part of a mental health hospital and closed to the public. And the 55 orphans that were left the old city, they were quickly discovered by a Palestinian woman named Hind al-Husseini. Yes, related to that al-Husseini. She took them in and later formed an orphanage to house, feed, and educate children, mostly girls, from all over the region who had been affected by war and conflict including a few Jews. She became a prominent activist for women and girls' rights and education, founded several institutions dedicated to those causes. (music) Of course, any fair assessment would have to recognize that atrocities were not limited to the Jewish side. In fact, an even more fair assessment would have to be that despite what happened in Deir Yassin, only one side of this conflict was fighting a self-declared war of elimination. To the extent that there are Israelis listening to this podcast, right about now they are screaming at their phones, okay, okay, you told about Deir Yassin, but what about Gush Etzion? And they're also right. Gush Etzion was a cluster of four Jewish kibbutzim with about 450 people south of Jerusalem. Shortly after the UN's partition vote, it was surrounded by the Arabs and cut off from any help. I talked last episode about the famous Convoy of 35 that tried unsuccessfully to reach them. There was fierce fighting throughout the Civil War as the kibbutzim were strategically located near Jerusalem, and the Haganah managed to hold a line of defense for several months. But the Arabs were gaining the upper hand, and at the last minute, the Jews were able to evacuate most of the women and children. About a month after Deir Yassin and the day before Israel declared independence, the Arabs overran the main kibbutz. Like with Deir Yassin, exactly what happened next is disputed. But what isn't disputed is that once the kibbutz surrendered, the Arabs executed everyone left, soldier and civilian. Only four people had managed to get out. A few dozen people had hidden a cellar but were killed when the Arabs tossed in grenades. The bodies were left out in the open for a year and a half until Jordan granted permission for Israel to come get what remained. The rest of the population from the other settlements were held for another year as prisoners of war in Jordan. Where Deir Yassin has become central to the Palestinian narrative then, Gush Etzion became something like another Masada, a tale of heroism and martyrdom for the Israelis. The date of its massacre was made into Israel's National Memorial Day. When Israel recaptured the area after the 1967 Six-Day War, the children who had survived, with the permission of the Israeli government, they went back to rebuild it. When we're talking about Israel's controversial settlements in the West Bank, well, Gush Etzion is one of them, and you can understand why it's so important for many Israelis. So, if you thought that I was only referring to the Jews with today's podcast title of "Original Sin," well, I think that the title can cover a multitude of meanings. <speaking in Hebrew> The operation to open the road to Jerusalem was only one part of Plan Dalit. The initial attack, which included Deir Yassin, was successful in briefly opening the road and getting supplies through. A follow-up operation a few days later, commanded by Yitzhak Rabin, got hundreds of trucks through with food, weapons, fighters, and critical medical supplies, just enough to keep the Jews going. But subsequent efforts failed to break the siege of the city or to gain permanent control over the main highway, which the Arabs soon cut off yet again. As the day of independence rapidly approached, it was not at all clear whether the Jews there could hold out long enough to be rescued. Elsewhere in Palestine, the Jews had more success. By the end of April, two weeks before independence, they had taken Jaffa and Haifa, the stories and the implications of which are worthy of an entire podcast episode of their own. Up in the north, the Jews were capturing critical territory and consolidating their gains. There was a desperate battle in the heart of Sfat, right where the tourists go today to shop and eat in that alleyway. Five days before independence, the Haganah and the Palmach managed to fight their way to the city, and they had with them a new kind of weapon. A homemade mortar called the Davidka, meaning Little David. It was named after its inventor, but was also supposed to be a nod to King David, who famously defeated his much larger opponent, Goliath. Only six were ever made. They didn't really work. It was not a very good weapon. But... They were exceptionally loud when fired. It was so loud, in fact. And since the Arabs had heard that Jewish scientists had invented the atom bomb, well, they thought that the Zionists had acquired nukes and were using them in Sfat. Many fighters fled in terror, and the Jews were able to take the city. It was a huge blow to Arab morale. Most of the Arab population left, around 12,000 people, thinking that they would return as soon as the British left and the Arab armies invaded. The Davidka mortar is actually still sitting there. You can walk right up and touch the Zionist atom bomb today. And so the bloody, nasty, and cruel Palestinian civil war went like this all over the country. One attack was responded with another, each massacre retaliated in kind, every atrocity repeated as vengeance by the other side. It was a desperate fight. And at every moment, May 14th, 1948, pulled closer the day when the British would end the mandate and leave Palestine. Plan Dalit was having success, but still hadn't answered the question of whether or not the Jews could survive. <laughs> On May 12, 1948, two days before the British mandate was set to expire, David Ben-Gurion called a meeting of the Provisional Government. It was one of the most important meetings held in Jewish history, and lasted nearly 12 straight hours. Ben-Gurion asked to go around the room and have everyone report in. The mood was low. Although Plan Dalet was having some success, the whole enterprise still seemed precarious. The United States had warned that it wouldn't help the Jews if they declared independence right now. They wanted instead to pursue a truce to stop the violence and allow for a reassessment. The Yishuv had made great advances on setting up a state. They'd even printed postage stamps. The Haganah and the Irgun agreed to finally join forces. A tax system had been organized. All the things. In contrast, the Arabs had done almost nothing. And in the face of Jewish military successes, their armies had gotten disorganized and chaotic. Not only were tens of thousands of Palestinians leaving the country, but their Arab leaders were actually the first to run. So there was no one around really to form a Palestinian government. And yet the Jews worried. Two days before establishing a nation and its government still wasn't sure whether they should do it. So Ben-Gurion called a vote. It was six to four in favor of declaring independence. Ben-Gurion turned to the commanders of the Haganah and had just one question. Can we win? Yigal Yadin, head of the Haganah, laid out the situation. The Arabs were superior in numbers and weapons, had captured key territory around Jerusalem and had the Jews there cornered under a blanket of artillery. But the Jews had willpower, better military experience and organization, and some tactical advantages. But they needed more weapons in the next few days. So what were their chances? Yigal Yadin thought that the best-case scenario was 50-50. For over 50 years, the Zionist movement had been building a Jewish homeland for this moment. And for decades, centuries, and two millennia before that, the Jews hoped that there would someday be a return to Zion. The hour was now upon them. It was in David Ben Gurion's hands. That's next time, the final episode of this season of Jew I don't know. <laughs> Baha